Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Inda NTR. How are you doing, Inda? I'm great, Mark. It's really warm out here today in Moncton, and I'm really excited to leave the house in a little bit for lunch. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the weather, Inda, because I've been teased so mercilessly for my my small talk chatter focused on weather, so I'm glad you brought it up first. <laughs> Today is actually a, a weather worthy. <laughs> it's one of those days when it's like worthy to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Weather is news today because I think yeah. we're actually um, we're recording this on uh, on a Tuesday, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, from what I understand, we might see record temperatures for New Brunswick, like going back to the late 19th century, this this could be the, the hottest day on record for a November day. <laughs> it's a little bit scary, but I'm going to enjoy the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too, for sure. And we'll, uh, yes, we'll definitely, we'll definitely forgive ourselves uh, for, for chatting about this. Um, yeah. So Inda, we're talking to your old boss today yeah. on the podcast, Mario Terrio. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so Mario, uh, now works for the LAC group. Um, but he, it, when you worked for him, it was still shift central. And in, in the last year he, he sold, uh, he sold the company, but stayed with it as an executive. Uh, he's the chief business development officer. So tell me, so tell me, Inda, um, it's uh, market intelligence mm-hmm. is, is the kind of work that, that shift central did. And it's now still a component of, what um, what the LAC group does and what he does with them. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me, because that, that term itself is like foreign to a lot of people, can you tell me what your job looked like when you were with Shift Central? Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit difficult to explain. Um, like I think I was telling you earlier, Mark, like after three and a half years working at Shift Central, at that time, even my parents still don't understand what I did or my siblings. And they're like, what, what is, what is market intelligence really? Um, but essentially what I did was, um, you know, I, I kept up with information, gathered those information and packaged them for my clients. Um, the clients that I dealt with through Shift Central were mostly in the financial sector. Um, so I just had to keep up with what uh, competitors and what is going on within their markets and kind of uh, keep them up to date uh, on on the note by the by you know like uh, preparing reports and stuff like that um, so that they don't miss a beat on uh, their strategic uh, thinking and their their ways of creating their strategy. Right. And what what kind of what kind of information would you be gathering? I know that that's a big question. You were probably doing different things according depending on the client. Yeah. But what kind of information would they have been looking for generally? Um. So the things that I would read a lot every day would be like who's investing in what, uh, what kind of uh, what's the investment trends, um, you know, for this sector and that sector. Um, you know, where in the world are people investing and in which uh, kinds of uh, investments? So like whether it's properties or um, other types of, of, of things. Um, so yeah, it was, I was just up to date on market trends, I would say. Yeah, it must have been uh, interesting for you. It must have given you a pretty good knowledge base jumping into this job with Huddle. Yeah, definitely. I think I remember just like 
understanding uh, the value of like, for example, the cannabis market way before it was legalized in Canada, because investors around the world were already talking about them. Um, and it kind of made me feel a little smarter in conversations, <laughs> just because I had to read it every day. <laughs> um, the, the news about that, like, I like live and breathe the Bloomberg's and Reuters um, of the world. Um, and it was fun, actually. It was a way to be connected to the global world through information. And in a way that it, it, I didn't expect um, after university, I would find a job like that uh, in New Brunswick um, and to be connected to, uh, you know, important clients um, all over North America. Um, so and I actually got a chance to also go to Orlando, Florida for a conference with our other people in, in market intelligence um, through Shift Central. So that was really cool. Yeah. It, I mean, there's there's so many reasons why I've been actually looking for for an excuse, uh, a reason to to talk to to Mario on this podcast. And, um, you know, there 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 are many reasons for me wanting to talk to him. Uh, one of them, the news hook being uh, into that he is the the newest chair of the Canadian uh, Chamber of Commerce. And I know you wrote about, uh, you interviewed Mario about that and wrote a piece for us recently. So t- tell us a little bit about that conversation you had with Mario and uh, and the priorities he would put on, you know, being uh, the chair of the chamber. Yeah, I think Mario was talking uh, a lot about um, his small business background as the founder of uh, Shift Central. Um you know, owning a small business in Atlantic Canada in New Brunswick, and how he's going to bring those kind of perspective and how tied actually the business world is with um, you know policy and also our society in general. How valuable it is uh, to society if a small business like a daycare or a bakery um, you know falters, um, how that's going to impact society. And I think that's what he mentioned that COVID nineteen was kind of letting us see um, in clearer ways uh, how businesses are, are valued in, in society. There's just so many, many interesting facets to his background. And, and we'll, and this, this is just sort of the latest chapter uh, for him. Um, and so I'm really keen to really, I was really keen to dig into a conversation that, you know, for me goes back to the, the early nineties uh, with Mario. And I, I learned that we share, uh, you know, a background in journalism. I, I teased him and said he managed to get out. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> he, he worked for for CBC in the early '90s, and uh, you know, and he's also you know is a published uh, writer with poetry and and short fiction. And uh, of course, his his brother uh, Camille Terrio was was premier of New Brunswick in the late '90s, and and Mario worked with uh, with his brother. Uh, throughout you know the at least part of that that tenure as liberal leader and then premier mm-hmm. and then went on to build his own you know company and uh and and now has sold it but still is working for it and trying to help grow its presence in Moncton it's a it's one of those funny companies and I love it you know it's like the you know the LA office the Washington DC office the New York office and the Moncton office right <laughs> you know it's 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 a perfect example of the kind of company that is exporting professional services and and trying to grow markets actively outside, uh, you know, outside of New Brunswick. And, uh, you know, so I, I was just super keen to kind of 
dig into Mario's history and and pick his brain about how he he grew his business uh, over time. So uh, I hope everybody enjoys this conversation as much as I did. Yeah, I'm really excited to listen to it too. All right. Well, let's go to that now. And thank you very much, Andy. It's good to chat with you and go enjoy the sun. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, Mario. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, Mario, one of the things I'm, I was very curious about when I was I was looking over um, your CV, I didn't know about your early career in, in media uh, be, until the last few days. I know a lot about you apart from that. And, you know, my first question for you is, you know, what did I do wrong? Because it sounds like you were in media right around the time when I was getting into media. And uh, you managed to find your way out. I've, I've tried to bust out a couple of times and do other things, but journalism always seems to suck me back in. Well, I'd like to think that I kept one foot in, but that might just be my naivete. Uh, I started as a broadcast journalist, a stringer actually in Toronto. I had taken the long way to media. I had studied sociology and social sciences in Moncton, and then I took a few years uh, to uh, play around in music schools and so on. So when uh, we settled in Toronto, I sort of peddled myself as a arts chronicler or somebody who could relay a bit of information and have a view on a few things. So that's how my, um, my uh, career in journalism started. And then that sort of morphed into uh, a broadcast role at TV Ontario or the French network. And then I was also stringing uh, for CBC and Radio-Canada. So for my six years that I was in Toronto, where my family was born, I earned my keep as a journalist. And and when I came, moved back to Moncton, sort of late 90s, we I was buying all these magazines like Fast Company and the internet was starting. And I actually uh, had a job in corporate communications and the agency I was with had seconded me to Fundy Cable at the time, which we rebranded as Fundy Communications. And uh, we were launching high-speed internet, the first provider in Canada to do so. So it was a very exciting time to be at Fundy. So, and then this, this internet bubble was growing and growing and everybody wanted a piece of it. So circa 1999, I thought in my very naive way, that if you plug technologies into information, you're going to be a billionaire by Friday. And that was Monday. So obviously it didn't turn out that way. But the skill sets of of journalism, uh, the ability to read and write, which might sound a bit flippant, but I mean, at a serious level, it's a very, very rare skill that's beneficial to all kinds of organizations, including business. the rigorous sort of critical eye, the ability to stay abreast of developments, those are all very much skills that are valuable in in many areas of of professional life, including business. So I uh, would like to think that I kept a foot into journalism. I I say here, we probably have the biggest private newsroom in New Brunswick. I put a caveat around that because it's not journalism in the sense that we that we um, pretend that we're objective because we're at the service of a client, but the rigor, the the critical eye, the ability to convey quickly in writing, 
the ability to publish through platforms, uh, the ability to find the strategic nuggets or the strategic considerations. Those are very much skills that, that journalists are trained to do. And during the, that time too, just uh, briefly uh, going back to the, the 90s, um, during that time in terms of in, as, as you were developing those communication skills and those writing school skills and starting to, to market them, um, you were, you were also quite creative, right? You were, you were also, uh, writing at the time, uh, poetry and short stories. So that Mo, I've always been curious about that Mario, cause I knew that you did writing. Um, but I didn't know much about kind of, uh, the story behind that. Yeah, that's another, um, intriguing question, I guess. And, uh, I, I guess I was born into politics. I mean, I'm taking a long answer, uh, a long road to answer your question here. Um, and then at university, I had sort of dabbled in left-wing politics and, and sort of Marxist politics for a few months. And, and that sort of had freaked me out. So I didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And the arts became a... Um, a conduit for, for expression as, as it always is, but as it became a way for me to, to maybe to get a clean start or, or fresher perspective on things. Uh, so, so that's one of the reasons maybe why I tried it. I had always studied piano as a kid. I'm not a talented musician by any means, uh, but I was always drawn to music and the arts and so on and so forth. So, and in Acadian sort of circles, poetry had always been a way uh, to have some sort of immediate voice. So there was, there was a relaunch of modern poetry in Acadian communities in the 70s and 80s. And it felt something that was accessible if somebody wanted to publish you. And that was very much part of that wave or mouvance where you could sort of pick up the mic and, and, uh, and, and try to uh, convey a few words or string a few sentences together. So that's maybe uh, one reason. And, and maybe the other sort of part of my personality is, is anybody who would know me would know that I'm a, probably a, a hard-headed guy uh, perseverant, maybe for sure, but but obstinate, and uh, I was I was sort of I'm not afraid of of writing solo, and that's a gift I think that my father gave me. So you stick to your own opinion and you stick to your guns, come hell or high water. I mean, you respect the other view, but you can't be afraid of your own opinion, and and if you're if you're half confident about what you're pursuing, you should give it your best and, and see where that leads you. So fast forward, um, I guess what I've tried to do in an unconventional way maybe is to pursue my own path. And that path has included business, poetry and writing and all kinds of other different interests. Now I'm curious because obviously um, you know you had worked with with your brother uh, Camille when he, when he was liberal leader and had served as premier, and was politics ever uh, a consideration for you? Did you did you ever think of pursuing the same path as your brother? 
No, I, I guess the answer is no. And I, I get asked that questions, that question uh, on and off. Uh, it, I was born in the Liberal Party, as you know. My, my father was a minister with Robichaud and then an a interim leader and then senator. And uh, we were born in the heyday of, of sort of social change and, and reform and growing up as a kid in that environment, it felt terribly exciting uh, that there were good sort of good natured sort of fight duels of ideas going on and, and around very serious issues. So, so equal opportunities and fiscal reform and, and giving everybody a similar shot in life independently of where you were born in New Brunswick. So it was all very exciting. And the thing with politics, it's also, and even when I gave Camille a hand around the leadership, uh, it was still the same. You know, politics is, is such a multi-layered sport. Uh, it has strategy, it has platform, it has communications, it has organized, organizational sort of uh, infrastructure, it has financial needs and considerations, and all of that's playing out concurrently. So if you're a juggler in some circus, you always have many balls in the air. And once you can sort of juggle at that level, it, it becomes a bit of a downer to juggle back with just one or two balls. So that's why politicians are so high on politics, because once you, it's like a drug, once you achieve that level, it's very hard to land at, on, onto something that feels a bit smaller or, or at, a, at a more minor scale. So I respect politics. I'm drawn to it. I love it, actually. But I've never really viewed myself as a partisan. I don't think that the liberals are better than conservatives. And I, even if it's my DNA, I'm, I never came to it as a partisan, really. And uh, I just feel now we fast forward in 2020, it's so hard to, to do change in, in political environments. It's very hard to impact. So there are other areas where, where one can be impactful and make a contribution, uh, which I find might not be as sexy or might not be as high profile, but can be as meaningful. So starting a business, is one of those things writing a book can have an impact so power or whatever that is is a circular thing and it tends to come and go and it it moves around and i think that the if you want to make a contribution you just need to know yourself deep down inside and pursue what you're meant to pursue if that's politics that's fine if it's business it's fine if it's the arts it's fine too but I, I do think that politics are not in 2020 what they were in 1960. There's much more many outlets now for expression and for influence. You just need to think about social media, for example, which didn't exist then. And, and also uh, politicians need, need to do a lot of introspection and they need to reclaim some respect. And most people don't come to life uh, or looking at life through a partisan lens. I, I don't believe that. Most people want to do good. They want things to move forward and they want to disagree in a civil way, if that's the case. 
But all in all, most people, I think, if you look at our kids and younger generations, I don't know that they would sort of think that the young liberals are better than the young conservatives that are better than the young greens or whatever. I think there is different channels now to express. And politics is a critical one, obviously, but it's not the only one. Speaking of, of, of choosing of choosing paths, um, I, I'm very curious about and I know it's you know, it's a 20 year long story and, and, and one that's still unfolding for you. But I'm very curious about, um, you know, the growth of, of Shift Central and, and the idea behind that company and then and then the, you know, the eventual sale of the company um, that you still that you now still work for. Um, can you tell me tell, take me back to the beginnings of that story and the founding of that company? Yeah, so as I was saying a bit earlier, it was a very naive uh, initiative on my part. Uh, I had I was helping Camille with, with politics. He had won the leadership and subsequently lost the election 12, 13 months afterwards uh, to Bernie Lord. And I was in a corporate communication shop. I was doing work with Fundy as their VP of corporate communications. And then I had always thought, and this was a personal motivation, that I, that I didn't want to be somebody's number two. It sounds very arrogant or very naive, but I was at the service of others, and I thought that I wanted to be my own man professionally. So uh, the best way or the quickest way uh, to achieve that would be to start something on my own. So again, I was reading these internet magazines and, and if you could plug in technology into information services, you'd be, you'd be done, you know, you'd hit a home run. And um, obviously, and we were going to tell companies, Shift Central, that we had started, we were four investors initially. We were going to tell um, companies how the world was changing and we were going to help them migrate into the new economy, quote unquote, that's how, how we called it then, through market intelligence services. So obviously we weren't good at our job because the first thing that happened when I started the business, the whole internet bubble collapsed or burst and these whole stocks kept crumbling down. And that was the first wave of, of that sort of tech deflation. So what was launched as an internet sort of project became an unoriginal small business story clawing to one account and two accounts. So the first year I was and walking up and down main street in Moncton and I sort of lost my shirt and the second year lost my t-shirt and trousers and so on. So it took a while to get it going. So it really sort of coalesced around the financial crisis where we were, it, was, it became better understood that if you weren't aware, acutely aware of market dynamics, uh, you could be blindsided. And, and what was a nice to have suddenly became a need to have. And that was the de facto launch of, of our agency. And what happened then, as opposed to being a tech startup, it became more like a, of a boutique professional services firm uh, based in uh, the information services, based on skills familiar to yours, so journalism, market research, and so on, uh, targeting U.S. outfits out of Moncton, because we had also had a, 
had a strategic blunder from, from day one. I thought this was going to be a service for small businesses, but small businesses never had the habit of spending on information services. So it, over time, it became a service for large corporations and larger organizations. Uh, so it became an unoriginal small business story. So sort of knocking on people's door to borrow money, um, not sure where payroll would come from on Friday and the checks were coming out at 3 p.m. And, and all of that. But I mean, that's part of the thrill of, of building character and, and I guess being your own person. So what kinds of, when you say you were looking for, you know, you, the U.S. market for your clients at that time, what, what, kinds, of, what kinds of companies uh, would you be looking to hire and what would they be looking for from you? Well, again, it's all, I guess, in, in hindsight, I'm very naive. So uh, I'll take that on me. But uh, again, I was reading about law firms and how they were supposed to evolve uh, from a corporate sort of organizational point of view. And uh, because you'll remember that the big accounting firms, Deloitte, KPMG, and, and Pricewaterhouse, and Grant Thornton, they had make a, made a virage, like a turn, uh, some 15 years earlier to become more of a corporation. So they understood that they were accountants, that was their DNA, and then they knew nothing about marketing and IT and being a CEO and so on. So they were hiring professionals to do that and building brands and corporations and so on and becoming that much more sophisticated. Whereas law firms and lawyers they were still of the view that they could do it all themselves. So you had a partner for marketing and a partner for IT and a managing partner and so on and so forth. So I was reading that there was going to be an opportunity here to help law firms become more sophisticated as, as, as business operations. And I had met this guy at some Halifax conference, Bob Aldachi from Portland, Maine. And uh, he shared the same assessment because he was working for a small consultancy uh, uh, tacked to a, a law firm in, in Portland, Pierce Atwood. And he said, yeah, we, we're trying to become more sophisticated and maybe we could use your service. So I started driving down to Maine and that became our first law firm client. So I drive down to Portland and then sort of, and then the Portland clients led me to contacts in Boston. So I started driving down to Boston and um, so we signed up a few law firms there also who were like-minded and signed up a med school, Commonwealth Medicine, sort of UMass's law school, um, medical school. And so it was very relational and labor intensive. And then that led me to contacts in New York. So I started driving down to New York City to pitch law firms and so on and so forth. And that's how it started. And so where does that take you from there? Because, I mean, you know, ultimately you do end up, uh, you know, selling the company uh, and, and becoming part of the company that, that bought Shift Central. So tell me a little bit about how that story happened. Well, I, I, I think that it became over time a nice little high-end boutique in the information services. So we were sort of 30, 35 writers, editors, analysts on the floor here in Moncton. We had a great list of clients, all blue chip companies, mostly in the U.S. Um, 
a bit in Toronto and Canada and a few clients in the UK. Uh, but I was feeling that we had hit a ceiling. So we needed, as you know, you compete with large companies and you're a small company. So that has its own set of, of demands and, and expectations. Uh, so your, your, your colleagues need to be top notch, but you can't compete from a comp perspective or recruiting perspective, salary perspective and so on. So there's a lot of challenges involved. It's a lot of fun because you need to get up earlier and metaphorically and, and, and sort of try to, to beat them at their own game. So, but I felt that we had hit a ceiling and it's never a straight line, as you know. So I'm not like building a business is one tough, grueling exercise. And some years you're king and, and, and the following next year you're nothing. And it, it's quite the roller coaster ride. So um, you need just, just to, to be hard headed and stick with it. So I felt we had hit a ceiling and the business needed more technology, better marketing, prob probably an influx of capital. Uh, which I didn't have. Um, so for all of those reasons, and uh, and I had I knew these folks at LAC. I had known them for ten years. Their DNA. They're also in the information services, but their DNA is more library services, and they were outsourcing legal or law firm libraries and offering these types of positions. As you know, my DNA was more journalism and market research. And we were looking to build a continuum. So they wanted our piece and we wanted to be part of a broader information continuum services piece. So I thought it made sense at the time. I still do. But then COVID happened and, and the rest is history. So we're still very much involved in the evolution of information services. And it's, a, it's an industry that, I'm, that I quite like, actually. It's, I'm, I'm, I still enjoy it. It, it strikes me that, you know, you're a lot of the elements of your story are very interesting and, and they, they relate to, you know, debates that we're having around developing the economy here. Right. So you have you have your your firm that that very, you know, as it as it built grew, it, it, it grew with kind of an export of services. Right. And it yeah. to the United States. And and as we talk about how this economy grows, um, you know, that's something that David Campbell raises a lot and 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 to share data on in terms of how we how the opportunity to, to grow, you know, the export of services. And at the, at the same time, you know, you, you built this company and you realized that it needed to grow and expand and you face limitations in terms of, of capital. Um, and so you reached out and you, you know, formed this, you know, partnership with the LAC group and, and that started to grow. And, and, you know, in New Brunswick, the, the, the fear always can be, when companies get sold to larger entities that are from the United States or from elsewhere, that those companies can eventually shrink and vanish. And it, it sounds like you, you've built something that is still, is still going to grow uh, and is still growing. And I'm curious, cause I know that we then we'd done a story about your growth projections. Um, I think it was around a year ago. Uh, and you talked about doubling the size of the office. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, the, these issues that I'm touching on and, and the challenges that you, you face growing during COVID now? Yeah, that's a, there's a, I'll try to unpack and, 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 and address them one at a time. I, 
I can often be very self-critical. So in the sense that it's never good enough, we should have done better, it should have been bigger. Uh, and I'm demanding on the ones I love usually, but I'm also probably very demanding on myself. Um, but I'm arrogant enough to think that we're as good as anybody here in New Brunswick. We can be faster, smarter. Uh, we can compete globally and so on. Having said that, I, I do think that in the local marketplace, we're not export driven nearly enough. And we don't measure ourselves often with the best of the best. So in our space, the big players were Thomson Reuters, Bloomberg, uh, LexisNexis, Walters Kluwer, all sort of large multinational corporations in the information space. So I saw this as an opportunity to try to thrive. So you connect with them, you partner with them, you compete with them, you try to steal a page from them and so on and so forth. So it takes a bit of maybe attitude, it takes a bit of confidence, but it, it's the only way that a region like ours can survive. Because if you look at the local marketplace, our demographics, our income, uh, there's just no way that we can have a self-sustaining economy by just pitching products or services to the local marketplace. So we can live here, we can have a great lifestyle, we can contribute to community, but we need to find ways and markets for our products or services. So that's always been my view and it's still my view. And I encourage anybody starting a business or any young kid looking at it, it's, I always try to give the same advice. You can live here, but your market is not here. So you need to find your market wherever it is and serve it from here but your market is not here. So that view has not changed. David Campbell shares that view with me. We've collaborated on this for a long while and I share his analyses almost all of the time. So that's one thing. Now, COVID, that's a totally different thing. Um, so yes, we had, so with this confident approach, I'm thinking that we could help LAC grow by growing Moncton and being a, a sort of a top destination for analysts, um, journalists, writers, researchers, and so on. And then COVID hit, we took a hit also. We lost substantial revenue, I would say, as the LAC group, just by attrition and and sort of clients shaving here and there, not major accounts, but all these cuts, they add up. And what we thought was an expanding marketplace suddenly became a marketplace of trying to sort of to save the house, you know, from, from the fire. So we've held on. We didn't grow as much as we thought we would, but now we're starting to hire again. So it would take a smarter person than I to, to predict when we'll get out of this COVID mess. But I think the companies who hang tight and are able to innovate and, and reassess themselves during COVID uh, will have a good chance coming out of it. And I still like our chances, like the information services 
are not going away. We're all in the business of too much information. That's not going away. And if you could have a stable of information professionals supporting organizations out of here, I think that's still very much relevant. So I guess time will tell. Now, moving away uh, from the conversation about your own business, I'm very curious. And again, I know this conversation will intersect with your work as well. Um, you, you've recently taken on on the role as of chair of, of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And I'm curious about your perspective about how not just in New Brunswick, but across the country, you know, we're all, and I know this is, uh, it depends on the sector um, that you're in, uh, you know, how we're all going to kind of navigate our way out of uh, COVID-19 and, and your sort of perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the chamber is a very good uh, platform. As you know, it's a network of over 400 chambers across Canada, representing over 200,000 businesses. So you have a very sort of real read on the pulse of the Canadian economy, on its opportunities and on its struggles. So I, I just find that it's a fascinating view. Uh, <clears throat> how we get out of it, I mean, it's our view, it's my view personally, and it's the Chamber's view also. It's my view that it's not governments that are going to get us out of of. of COVID economically, they're going to help us go through it sort of from a public health perspective. They could be good support and key sort of support players, but businesses will need to lead the recovery. And that's always how it goes. Small businesses create jobs. It's not governments that create jobs. And coming out of this, we're going to need more jobs and more opportunities for, for all of us. Um, so... I mean, it's a it's a, an alignment of interest. I've always been sort of a volunteering in different aspects of of economic development through APEC and the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council and the Moncton Chamber when I moved back from Toronto a hundred years ago. Uh, and it's I've always thought that that onus was on us to sort of to try to parlay our local economy into something much more sustainable, not sort of crying for help from governments, but being more innovative and being more optimistic about our own abilities and being more cocky about our chances to, to compete globally and so on and so forth. So the chamber gives us this, this gives me this, this fantastic perspective and understanding Obviously, as you can suspect, I, I come to this uh, position of, of chairs of the board of directors as, as a small business owner or a small business person, because there's a bunch of large corporations also on the board. So CN and Suncor and Royal Bank and TD and, 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 and so on, Air Canada and so on and so forth. So my perspective is obviously very different, but I, I'm convinced that it's a fundamental perspective to bring to this table. Small businesses can do more, need to do more. We need a better understanding of small businesses. <clears throat> we tend to bundle all of ourselves in the same boat and people will say, oh, either up poor small businesses or the owners of small businesses, they're all crooks and, and they don't pay taxes and they, they don't reinvest and so on. So it's very much of a caricature of our understanding of small businesses. So I think we can have a much more sophisticated view who imports, who exports, who's in the services, who uh, are in the products, who is innovation ready or is innovating, 
who is attracting the best human capital. And we should break it down to have a much deeper understanding of the Canadian economy. And I'm also convinced that small businesses can play a much larger role, a support role for large businesses. So we could more readily be involved in supply chains of large corporations and be involved in digital transformation for large corporations. And, and we could set up mentorship pro programs between entrepreneurs of small businesses and, and large sort of corporate uh, leaders and so on. So anyways, for me, it's a, it's a great platform. I'll try I'm coming at it from a small business perspective and with the feeling that there's so much to do that it's going to be a very uh, exciting year. You know, obviously through, you know, through your own business, you have a very good understanding of, you know, the North American market for your own, your own sector. And from the Canadian chamber, you have this kind of, you know, a strong understanding of how the economy is doing across the country and the challenges that, that businesses are facing. How, it, with that in mind, those things in mind, how, how is, how do you think Atlanta Canada is doing and how do you think, uh, how, how are we positioned to, to grow and what do we need to do to be stronger coming out of this? Well, I, 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 and it's, it's a litany of, of the same things. I, I think, I think we need to, to be much more entrepreneurial and that's not related to our dependency on governments. I, I, I think we need to start businesses. We need to export more. We need local capital needs to invest in local businesses we need to be more heavily involved into innovation. Uh, we need to create jobs that our young people would like to do when they want to come back here and so on. So I think it's, it's a mind shift and, and that's solely on us. It's not dependent on policy, on politics. It's dependent on our own ability to be more entrepreneurial, create opportunities, take our economic future into our own hands. Once you say that, the, the same challenges remain, you know, how do you get good human capital? How can, can let's say my colleagues here in Moncton who service uh, a big shot, big time lawyer in New York City every day by publishing market intelligence. How can my colleague in Moncton be inside this client's head? How can, he or she understand how they live and they live in Jersey. They take the train at 5.30 a.m. They read the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. They're already sort of dictating memos to their EAs. And so, so while we live here, we can't be sheltered from what's going on. And sometimes I feel that's a terrible weakness that we're, we're, we're sort of defending here and we're being defensive. We need to open up to what's going on in the world. Immigration is a great way to, for us to benchmark. So I have a young colleague on the floor. Um, he was born in Iraq, grew up in Dubai for reasons that we can suspect. So obviously he's got a very good worldview as to how cultures work, how people work harder in some other areas and so on. So, so there's a lot of opportunities when you, when you're not overly discouraged in some days, but I, I really think the onus is on us and we need to put businesses front and center. And, and I'll give you another example. When, when shift central, uh, when I decided to sell shift central, uh, I can point to three or four local companies who also sold to us companies that were private equity owned. So 
So an obvious question to me is that why wasn't there any sort of private Canadian private equity interested in these types of businesses? So is Canadian capital as forward? Is it too conservative? Is it too slow? So those are all sort of strategic questions that we'll need to wrestle with and identify. Indefinitely. And, and those are also the, the same kind of challenges that would have, you know, come up with, with the tech companies that grow here, right? Around just the story around, you know, uh, Q1 Labs and, and Radiant 6 and, 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 and the debate over it being, you know, U.S. interests that ended up buying uh, Q1 Labs. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think that's a, that's a moot point. It's a, I mean, if you're a business, the U.S., you, we, can, we can say what we want about them. But they're they're more business savvy in some ways than the Canadians are. And I and a small anecdote here is then when I when I pitch big law firms like global leading firms in New York City, they would give me a meeting, which I first found astonishing, and then they'd give me a quick yes or no. And it would pick, pitch big law firms in Toronto, and I'd say, Well, they would give me a long maybe. And that's very, very different if you're trying to survive in, in business. So you prefer a quick no to a long maybe. And I would tend to say that the U.S., they're, they're, they have a quicker yes or no, and Canada has a long maybe. So it, if I find kinship in my business, I don't really care if it's Canadian or not. I think it's, it's in this case, it's for Canadian capital to get up earlier and compete with their U.S. counterparts. And having said that, I'm not advocating that the whole Canadian economy wholesales to, to the U.S. I'm saying that we as Canadian can do the same uh, in the U.S. If you take Canadian banks, they're perfectly, perfectly positioned for more acquisitions in the U.S. They're catch rich. The regulatory framework is different here. Uh, BMO is heavily involved in the Chicago marketplace, TDs all over, up and down the East Coast, RBC bought in Los Angeles. So we are we are having some success stories. So the, the big U.S. monster, as, as is sometimes portrayed in Canadian media, I don't really share that that view. Well, and also to, you know, I, 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 as a Maritimer or a New Brunswicker, um, we also have, you know, I mean, some, I've had people that kind of question this in me because I've always been one of these people that grew up spending a lot of time in in the New England states, and so very felt a very strong attachment to it, uh, and and uh, and and not a strong an attachment to Toronto, Montreal, and and kind of Western Canada. It's also kind of natural for us Maritimers, and it sounds like you did that when you were building your business. You got in your car and you drove down the road, right to the nearest points, which is Portland and then Boston and then New York. So there's a certain kind of geographic. Um, well, there is a geographic proximity and we're close, closer, closest to one of the biggest marketplaces in the world. I think between Boston and, and D.C., there's 100 million people and, and it's one of the richest marketplaces in the world. Now, I thought that that wasn't a natural outlet for me now exporting to China or or even the UK that was I felt that was too big of an undertaking for a small business such as mine so the US became a natural sort of outlet well Mario this is a fascinating conversation um, I know I need to, to let you go now but I really I really appreciate you talking to me oh this is a this is really my pleasure because it's it's very rare that 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 we can share sort of swap notes with with 
around the information services, linkages between journalism and, and businesses and, and the skill sets that are required. And, and, and frankly, sort of sharing also our need to compete more and be more aggressive and be more confident here that like COVID is, is uncovering the Atlantic region as a, as a prime place to live and work. So like we'd be foolish to think that that should not generate new business opportunities, but we need to measure ourselves against the global competitive marketplace. And we need to reduce our dependencies on, on, on government programs. And we need to be that much more confident and, and get up earlier in the morning. And, and that's not that really hard to do. So I'm confident in, in, our, in our future while not being naive about our challenges. I mean, we have an aging demographics, healthcare, educational needs, infrastructure needs, and so on. But I mean... I guess I've always tended to see the glass uh, half full. All right. Well, thanks very much. And I think, I think uh, the glass full uh, heading towards being full is, is a good place for us to stop now. But I, I really appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Okay. Nice talking to you, Mark. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office. And thank you, Mario, for the great chat. A Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legier, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And thank you, Inda, for the great intro chat. You can subscribe to the podcast on a variety of podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. We will talk to you next week.